What is going on? Welcome to The Land Podcast. This week, we have uh, an episode with Devin and Nate from Painted Arrow Outdoors. And so Nate Hicks was actually on uh, this podcast here not long ago. He talked about living on a boat in order to buy some land. And that was a really great episode, some good stories in that. So if you haven't caught that, I encourage you to do so. But I also recorded with them and they interviewed me about buying buying land and where the land market's at, where it might be going and so much more. So I decided I'm going to, with their permission, I'm going to share that conversation here this week. Um, things are absolutely crazy. And uh, to be completely honest, I uh, wanted, to, wanted to share something here because I have a couple podcasts here scheduled and ready to go out. But um, this one should be a really good buffer for what we have coming down the road. So we have some great conversations uh, coming really soon. Before we get into it, a couple quick housekeeping notes. Velvet Fest for Exodus is live and rocking. So as this is out right now, you can save 20% off any multi-render order on our website using the code VELVETFEST. So great opportunity to um, get some more cameras and numbers and save some serious money. So I hope you guys take advantage of that. We're going to be sending out some more deals to the email subscribers out there. And if you're not on that list, you can go over to the website, sign up on the footer, and you will be getting all of our company updates. We are still giving away five dozen of the Exodus MMTs. All you have to do is leave a written review and you will be in the money for a chance to win a dozen of brand new Exodus MMT arrows tailored to your specs and what you have going on. And uh, that's been really exciting with that launch and what we have going on there. And also the very last thing, the goal of this podcast is very simple. It's to help 100 people buy their first piece of ground. A couple ways to get involved in that list. Number one, if you're in the state of Illinois or looking to buy in the state of Illinois, reach out. I am licensed here and I'm happy to help you out. And even if it's in a different part of the state that I'm not familiar with, I'd be happy to get you in contact with someone that I would personally do business with. If you are looking outside of Illinois and you're looking uh, anywhere else in the domestic US, I might be able to connect you with someone that I would personally do business with. <clears throat> so reach out, be happy to do that. And the last thing is if you just learned something from here, you felt like you had a little bit more of an edge going into your first purchase, let me know. Want to add to that list, we are cruising through that goal for the first 100. And I just want to say thank you to all of you for reaching out and supporting this project because it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I think that's it for right now. Hope you guys have a great week. Until next time, here we go. So welcome everybody to another episode of the Painted Arrow Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Too Jake Hofer. <laughs> uh, Jake Hofer, we're going to let him do his uh, his proper introduction here. But just to kind of recap, doing a series kind of on and off um, about land. The Buy Dirt series is kind of what we, we coined it. And uh, we've been talking quite a bit about, um, you know, kind of how Devin and I have gotten to our our current situations and being real transparent with our, with our listeners. And, um, one of the things we really wanted to do is get somebody who is a professional agent who's in the industry doing this day in and day out and kind of pick their brain. So Jake, um, you're that guy. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, real quick. Um, why don't you just start off, give us the full introduction. Like we want to get to know you, mm -hmm. um, who you are, what you do. I know you're affiliated with your own company as well as some others, some podcasts. Give us, give us the full rundown and we'll, we'll ask questions as we, as we walk through it. Sure. Yeah. My name is Jake Hofer. I'm a licensed broker out of the state of Illinois. I uh, work with a company called Land Pros and I'm also the co-owner of Exodus. So Exodus Outdoor Gear, we manufacture trail cameras and we have uh, some other exciting things coming in the pipeline here very soon. And, um, uh, 
host the Exodus podcast, the land podcast, and uh, just stay pretty busy. <laughs> stay pretty busy between all of that. Where are you, where are you out of currently? Uh, so uh, North Central Illinois is kind of where I was born and raised and call home. So um, that's where I work every now and then. I go out to our facilities in Ohio for Exodus. And, uh, but really work uh, remotely here, have an intern here in Illinois that helps out with a, a variety of things. So uh, this is the seventh year we've been in business. I've been with Exodus for about five and a half years. So um, we've been working really hard and it's, uh, it's a lot of work, but it's been really rewarding. Uh, Exodus has a team of seven now. And I remember when it was just two of us. So it's, uh, it's really cool to see the company grow. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. How, how did you kind of, what was your introduction to hunting or just the outdoor industry in general? I mean, is it, was it somebody that got you into it when you were young or what, what's your uh, background with hunting in general? Yeah. Well, so I actually grew up on a small deer farm in Illinois. So, um, uh, I always kind of consider it like the, the horse girl of the class. I was like the deer kid of the class. Like, and as <laughs> as cringy as that is, that's the, that's the dead honest truth. I grew up on a deer farm. Um, really kind of fascinated with whitetails forever. Kind of looking back, took some of that for granted, like seeing deer grow uh, their velvet antlers all summer and then see them kind of like get rutted up and, you know, their behavior change. And I got to see that literally my entire life growing up. And then kind of always had an affinity towards wanting to work in the industry. I didn't know how that would exactly work or anything else. But so um, ended up getting, uh, went to a small school in Iowa and closing mid midway through had a full tuition scholarship. Apparently they gave too many of those away because they closed. And then I transferred to Western Illinois University uh, and graduated there. And I had to get an internship to graduate. And uh, I was writing for a website called Wide Open Spaces at the time and uh, was really infatuated with business and marketing and was doing a lot of things while I was at school, um, getting my education. And I had to get an internship to graduate. I did some freelance work for Exodus actually when they were still very young. I did a, you can still probably find it on Wide Open Spaces. Like I did a product review on their very first camera ever. And, um, met him at ATA and I was like, Hey, I need the internship to graduate. I don't care if you pay me. I, it doesn't matter. Like I have to have to graduate. Hopefully if I make an impact on the business, there'll be more opportunities. So that's kind of what happened. That was one of their first employees and then, um, saved all my money. Um, thankfully my parents let me crash to their place for like two years. And I drove a 2004 Hyundai Elantra. That was like $2,000 car. Didn't spend money on anything, saved every single penny I, I could and uh, did some other side hustles. And then eventually I had an opportunity to buy a pretty good chunk of the company when, when leadership changed. And uh, the rest is kind of uh, as cliche as history now, but it's, uh, it's been really fun. It's been a heck of a ride. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So can we talk, we, we really want to discuss some like specifics of like deals that you've had. Sure. But just starting off, like, you know, Devin and I, we've shared on previous, you know, podcast episodes, like our dealings and how we kind of went to market and things like that. What, what are some mistakes some like really common, like errors, just, they might be basic, but like one or two, three, however many things you can think of, like of errors that you would see in a buyer coming into a deal, looking to buy specifically land, maybe mm -hmm. it's a house on it, just in general, what are some of those things? Um, with someone that's just starting out, I think probably the biggest thing is people not really nailing down their financing. People get so excited about looking for farms and looking for the perfect deal. In reality, if you shop around with a bank for a good while and put some effort, make some contacts and really prospect in that prospect process, it, that's super important. I think most people don't do that. And I've made that mistake to some regard as well, um, where now I, I've worked with enough banks. And you know, if I had to go back and, and finance some of the properties I bought, 
probably would have went with with some of these other people here. Now, the other folks were perfect. They were great to work with and everything else. But there's a lot of different loan products. There's a lot of different um, down payment thresholds and everything else. And so nailing that down can really set yourself up to either buy more property than what you thought you could or get a better interest rate or better terms. And with land, a lot of these are arm loans or they're very like these banks are very rigid. So they have a five-year arm loan, which means adjustable rate mortgage. So every five years, it's going to, you know, like there's a balloon you have to refinance or like a three-year or a 10-year or a seven-year. And a lot of that's negotiate. Like you can negotiate that as well. Like don't take anything for face value from what I've learned. And so people just get, people look at the end goal too much. Like there's multiple points of negotiation that can really set yourself up for a great purchase along the way. So that's, that's probably one of the biggest things. And I think uh, another thing too, like with a, a property with a house, you can actually get a lot of different types of loan products as well. Like if you're a veteran, you could get a VA loan on a house in 80 acres. How do I know that? Cause I helped the client do that last year. Um, yeah. Or you can get a house with an FHA loan. Like there's some things that are stipulations to it. Like it can't necessarily usually have income uh, on tillable ground or a CRP contract. But if it's uh, 80 acres of timber or something like that, you could, uh, you know, put 0% down potentially. Yeah. Do, do you, like you personally, do you prefer, I mean, are, are you considering yourself like specifically land? Like, is that what you prefer to sell and help people buy? That's for sure. My preference. Um, I do sell quite a bit of houses, uh, residential deals. I just got a contract on a, uh, uh, an industrial building that uh, we're going to sell. So a lot of it is all, it's all some of the same tools and processes, but there's nuances to each category. Obviously, at this point in my stage of the career, I'm not the person that can broaden my shoulders and say, I only do land. And if, and if you call me for something else, I'm going to say, I don't do business with you. That's not where I'm at right now. Um, so I've sold a ton of houses. And I think that provides a lot of different um, experiences as well that cross over later on different deals. Uh, and the other thing too, is a lot of these people that buy a house in town, everyone's dreams to live in the country period. Everyone you talk to like, oh, I want to buy a house and, or buy some land, and build a house, or I want a house in the country. Well, guess mm-hmm. what? If, if you're, if you're shying those people away, like I don't do business with you. Um, eventually in a 10, 15 year timeframe, they're probably, you know, if you treated them well, hopefully they're calling you back to hopefully find them a piece of ground. So, and I've seen that happen on um, where I've helped people on like these tiny, like two or $3,000 lots on, uh, on a lake community. They call you back a year or two later because now they want a house. And so like, there's all these different things um, to where, you know, I don't know. You just don't want to get too proud too early, I guess is what I would say. And yeah, Pat, Por- and Pat Porter says this, um, I've had him on the land podcast a handful of times, uh, wealth of information. And, and it really resonates with me. He says, there's no such thing as, uh, small deals with small agents. So like, don't be, don't be too fancy. <laughs> yeah. How, how was it that you got involved or were interested in, uh, real estate specifically? Like when did that, when did that kind of happen for you? Yeah, great question. So actually, my senior year of college, um, I decided I want to get my real estate license as well. A lot of successful people that I see have multiple streams of income. And so in my senior year, I actually got my real estate license. I passed that exam. And with, uh, I, I just, I, I don't know, I just had an inkling to, to get in that space. I found it fascinating to, I knew I wanted to buy land eventually. And, uh, you know, like what's a better way to learn the process and surround yourself with people that are doing it on a, on a daily, um, schedule. So I got it my senior year. And to be honest, like there for the first two or probably two years, it's pretty slow. A couple of deals a year, third year was a little bit better. Fourth year was like, wow, this is really great. Last year, which was my fifth year. It was like, this is beyond what I could even imagine. 
this year, which would be, I think my fifth or sixth year. And like, it just took time to get going. I think where, when I got my license, my senior year at college too, where people were like, why would anyone trust you to do business or why like you have no experience and all these other things. And, and I just thought, well, if I start when I'm 22, I'll have 10 years experience at 32 versus if I waited till I was 29 or 30 and I have one or two years experience. So that's, yeah. I just wanted to get started and uh, I've learned a ton in the last five years. And I've learned a ton, even in the last two years of starting the land podcast and getting to talk with really sharp people and have those people in my Rolodex and like, Hey, got a quick question. Do you have a second to where, you know, you wouldn't have had that otherwise. So that would be, uh, you know, it's just been a, been an evolution of just getting started and learning along the way. So you got a guy who wants to buy land, right? And mm -hmm. you said that one of the biggest mistakes is that their finances, somebody comes to you, they want to buy land. They have a little bit of savings. Like what, what is your recommendation on how, how to move forward or, or what is your, um, like, what, what are you telling that guy? Like, Hey, maybe you can kind of tell just from the initial conversation with him, like, you know, maybe he's not quite there yet. Are you, are you specifically saying like, Hey, you need to save more money or like, what, what is your, how are you walking them through that? It, it depends on the client. Like sometimes it's not my place to say that, but if it's like uh, someone that I know pretty well and there's a level of rapport, um, you know, I can say like, man, I, I, I don't know. I think if you wait a year or two, you're going to be able, be able to buy a different property than what you thought you could now. Like maybe, maybe waiting a little bit longer, you're going to have a little bit more opportunity. Um, but that's really not my place. My thing is like, go talk to a bank. You know, I'm happy to make some intros, but that's your decision. Um, you know, I've had good experiences with these and other clients have, you know, had good experiences with these banks. So that's the biggest thing, but you, they can, I think most people can do the math. Like if they need to be at 20, 25% and they want to buy a 200,000, you know, $200,000 farm, they should be able to do the math of like, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm comfortable with, or, uh, you know, sending them a vacant land calculator or like, okay, well you run the numbers. Like, I don't, I don't know your finances in and out and I don't really care to know them either. Like you do the math on that, but I'm happy to answer any specific questions. So not really my place. And I tell you what, too, you can never judge a book by its cover because there's people that you would think that maybe aren't as well off as what they are. And, you know, they're really well, uh, well off financially. And then, you know, like the inverse of that, where you think that they would have no issue and maybe they do have issues. So, um, and the beauty of the land land buyers too, is they've usually bought a house or they, they have some discretionary funds or they're in the position to do so that they're not just the, the average person like just looking to buy their, their first house and completely clueless. Like they, they're not experts of the process, but they at least have uh, some foundation. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. I, I was just, you know, it, it's just, it, I'm curious. So you, you mentioned last year was your uh, you said fifth year kind yeah. of doing this. Mm -hmm. And so coming off of COVID and just, I guess the state of the real estate market in general, what is that, meant for you in terms of you know number of number of interested buyers and then both difficult and kind of just the difficulty in getting deals done with you know you hear these stories of like you know these people specifically with houses somebody comes in and they bid 20 or 30 over ask and they give an appraisal guarantee and all these things how what's it been like to navigate that and what would you maybe tell somebody um who who wants to start looking right now mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's Really interesting time, uh, what we've seen here the last couple of years. I mean, honestly, pre-COVID was was still pretty decent. And then after, you know, like, I remember March of 2019 or it would have been March of 2020, kind of not knowing where things are going to go. Are people not even going to want to buy ground? Are they going to be too scared? So much uncertainty in the space, but to, I think, realistically, everyone's surprised. Um, the market just ran up 
like crazy. And I think a lot of things was a lot of smart money try to hedge against inflation. Because obviously, when they're printing all that money, it's pretty fair to guess that we're going to be seeing some levels of inflation. And, and one of the best places to park money uh, during uh, inflationary times is land. So that happened a lot. And there's a lot of really sharp people with a lot of money that bought a lot of ground and drove all the prices up. And then I think another thing too is, uh, and it's, it's probably a little bit more minimal, but like Starlink, like you can get internet just about anywhere now. So like these people that want to work from home and get out of the city and buy a format or, you know, like boxable, like you can buy these prefab homes for like 40, 50 grand now. So like all these different things are pointing towards people getting out of the city and be able to, you know, continue to live uh, their lives pretty comfortably. So really it was an influx of buyers and a lot of sellers didn't want to sell. So that means that it drove up prices. Uh, there was inventory issues. Interest rates were super low. So people could afford a lot more than what they could even just now today as we're recording it. And so it was really just the perfect storm. And uh, it was a great time to be an agent if you could get something to sell or if you had buyers that were patient enough to work with you and, and trust the process to, to get something locked up. So, um, you know, like where we're at today, inventory is still pretty low, but there's a little bit more hitting the market. It's not quite as moving as fast, but it's still really strong. And historically, rates are still pretty pretty good. Like you can still get four and a half, five and a half percent on a piece of ground. Not as good as three three or three and a half where it was not long ago. But um, you know, I, I don't know. I still don't think the the supply has hit the the demand at this point from what I'm seeing. So you're from Illinois. Yep. If you got 80 acres of tillable ground, what do you see that ground being, you know? What's the sale price of some of these? That's the first question. And B, what is it moving for right now? Yeah, man. Well, so uh, 80 acre track tillable that's you know really strong. Um, you know, even in it's weird because even some sales that were in last December, prices went up another 20% on some other comps. So, like, I've seen uh, tillable tracks, there's been a couple that cracked $20,000 an acre this year. Um, there was quite a few last year that are like 15, 16, 17 is, is pretty common. And so, yeah, in that, in that sense, it's insane. And, but the tillable markets kind of drive everything up. And once again, it's not necessarily the adjoining neighbors buying, because when I'm selling tillable ground, it's, it's, it's a very numbers oriented, uh, situation, usually the neighbor is likely to end up buying it. And, uh, an auction is the best way to do it because the neighbor is going to beat them up. And if you list it, it's just, it, that never works well. So you almost have to do an auction with tillable ground. But the thing is a lot of these buyers are coming from outside of the area. Uh, maybe they're 1031 ing out of, uh, apartments out of New York, or maybe they're 1031 ing out of different things, or they're, they're hedge funds that are just trying to buy, uh, chunks of ground. So that's what a lot of people have been seeing is this a lot of, I guess, big money coming in and buying these and driving these prices up. But, you know, it's, I don't think, uh, I don't think those prices are going to retract to where they were a couple of years ago or even two years ago or one year ago where they're like 10, 11, 12, like I think 15, 16, 17 is where we're going to see these for a long time. And for, for somebody listening who doesn't know what a, like a 1031 exchange is that you referenced, um, can you just kind of mention what that is and what that allows people to do when they're coming out of, you know, another investment? Yeah. So uh, in, in the most brief terms, 1031 is basically you buy an investment property, you sell it, for a gain and you take those gains and roll them into the next property. So if you bought a property for a hundred thousand dollars, you sell it for 150, you have to, part of the rules, you have to buy another property that's at least 150,000 and you take all those gains and roll them into the new property. And so basically you're deferring, you're not, you're not avoiding them. You're deferring them. So you're basically kicking the can down the road and you're, you're barreling, bar, bar, uh, you're, 
burying radioactive money under the ground into that property. And then when you decide to sell it, you dig that up and go bury it in the next one and defer till you die. So um, I think some people probably overcomplicate the 1031 or people think they need a 1031 every single thing. Like if you don't make a lot of money and you had it for over a year, it's a 15% capital gains tax. Like no one likes paying taxes, but like don't rush into something else because you're just trying to, to avoid a a $5,000 tax bill when you made 40, 50 grand, like don't get greedy about it. Yeah. And, and what is the, what is the term with a, with, with a 1031? Don't you have to, you have to identify the parcel by X date and then you got to close on it by another date. Correct. Yeah. And I don't have it right in front of me, but I want to say you have to identify within 45 days of closing on your property one and yeah. you have to close on property two uh, within, within 180 days. And that, but that's part of the 180 is part of the 45. So it's actually less than that. Right. Okay. Thank you. I was just curious. And I mean, I, you know, we both know what that is, but there may be listeners that don't. So I was just- yeah. And I, I probably got one of those facts wrong. So go Google 1031 <laughs> and, uh, and you'll see where I said something wrong. And there's, so- 10, there's 1031 specialists too. Like there's people that that's how, uh, intricate it can be is like there are specialists that are 1031 special like that's all they do you call them that's what they do so that's tells you how complicated it can be the reason i initially asked that question about the the ad tillable like there's places all around that we see now um you know for sale by by owner not running any you know not running under anybody or through anybody and and you see like 20 acres for like 150 grand you know, something, something outrageous where like, it's just like, might be just swamp ground. It might be, you know, overgrown fallow field or something like that. But, um, I was just curious on like your neck of the woods, what that was. So thanks for answering that. But that, that is insane by the way. Um, 20 grand an acre. That's, that blows me away. But I know, I mean, Southern Illinois, even in any, anything South of Chicago, really, it starts to become farm ground. I've driven through that country and I mean, it's incredible. Some, some big farmers around us too, how they're, they'll, they'll be willing to pay it, you know? Um, but I guess you talked about, uh, auctions. T- tell me, I, I really don't know much about like a land auction. What does that look like? And how is that like, like it's happening on December 1st, here's the day. Like, what does that actually look like? Is it on the computer? Or is it on the phone? Like, what is it? What happens? You can dream up any of the above. So, um, <clears throat> So right now it seems like online auctions are obviously like the baseline. So I have an auction coming up actually next, next July. So we'll just talk about this one, for example. Um, so, and a lot of these are like these mixed recs, mixed rec, like mixed use properties. Um, a lot of them are going to online auction. The reason being is it's really hard to price properties right now because I don't, you don't know the mark. We don't know what they're worth at this point because it's been going so crazy. So like the one way to find out is to do an auction. You're going to find out what it's worth that day. And so uh, for instance, so you, you talk with the owners, you set a reserve. Um, I always suggest for there to be a reserve. Like it's hard to say what could happen in the world uh, leading up to that auction. And I think owners reserve the right to um, have some baseline of safety to where they're comfortable. So you have a, you have a reserve, you have an online auction, you go in and register it and uh, usually have bidding open for five to 10 days and people bid on there. Most of the bidding occurs like within the last couple of minutes and then it's a soft close. So like if it closes at noon and you get a bid at 1159 it pushes it back 10 minutes. And then if someone else bids again, it pushes it back 10 minutes. So that's kind of what you have to do with an online auction. Um, but the element of an in-person auction is something that, man, it'll get your heart racing. Even if you're not even wanting to buy, you're like, you know, not trying to raise your hand and make eye contact with anybody. And I think everyone's done that. And I think that that makes an element to squeeze that room for, for every single penny and get the true 
max value of a property if it's marketed properly. And, uh, and I think on the flip side of that, if it's not a auction company that does it really well or, or really spends a bunch of money, like when I take an au- on an auction, I'm spending a lot of money to make sure it is successful and advertise the heck out of it. You get some of these other smaller brokerages or auction houses that maybe don't do as awesome of a job or maybe they have their, their systems. I've seen where that could be a great opportunity to buy a parcel. So that would be a, that would be a piece of advice for someone listening. Like maybe they see a, a 30 or 40 acre parcel and it's mainly timber, which is usually another you know great way to buy a property um, that's going up for auction tillable, real tough to buy at an auction, but uh, a timber track that is mis or under marketed. That could be a huge opportunity. And those are rare too. Like I see one or two of those a year and I, and I look for them too. So don't think that you're just going to find one in a week, but um, cause a lot of times they're hard to find for a reason and that's why they're good. Does that typically go in favor of the seller or the buyer? In that situation, you better for a buyer, but if you're, if you're trying to buy a, but if that same park property is really well marketed, they spend a bunch of money and uh, they, they sent at mailers out, they ran ads, they have signs everywhere. It's in the local paper. It's in like, and those ones are probably not going to be as, uh, as exciting. But the thing is like, you're going to find out if you are wanting to buy that parcel and you think like, oh my gosh, it's going to go for way too much. A lot of times those auctions are what's setting the market value too. Like I remember I was at an auction uh, in November and I was thinking like, ah, I might go for like 55 on the high end, maybe 52, 50. And went for $6,000 an acre. And then that was the new baseline for those types of properties. And it's gone up even more. And so there's always people that are shell-shocked a little bit on those auction results. But if you're the first one leading into it, market's going to follow. Um, it could be a great opportunity there too. But that's all speculation. And everyone looks like a genius right now. So um, I'm not trying to pretend I'm smarter than the next guy next to me. That's just what I've, I've seen. And, and it's hard to, been, hard to be wrong lately. So is, is uh, like, what's the... If if you look at it in like a pie, a pie chart, people come want to buy land, want to buy a house. Are typically most people paying cash? Are they most people paying loans? I know that obviously fluctuates with mm-hmm. so many different things, but just in a general sense, what do you see when somebody's coming to look? Hey, we're, we want to buy something. Hey, we this is this is our setup. What what's the what's the breakdown? From what I see, most people are are financing in some some regard, and a lot of that has to do with where interest rates have been too. Um, so I'm, there's been properties that I know people could buy cash, uh, no issue, but they finance it. And it's like, well, if we're at seven or 8% inflation, and I'm borrowing this money three, three and a half percent. And I can pay it off whenever I want to. Um, Cause they are usually, like I said, adjustable rate mortgages. So interest rates go super high. Well, they can just pay it off. So that's, um, that's kind of what I've seen the most, but yeah, I mean, and even with uh, some of the residential and everything else, you know, most of it, most of it is on financing and, uh, you know, that, that could change, uh, as interest rates go up higher and those people that are buying pieces of ground more likely do have the resource to potentially buy cash or put 50% down. Um, but yeah, that, that's so fluid with the market, but overall I'd say most people are using financing. So if I'll paint a picture for you, if there's a guy that comes to you, maybe he's a younger guy, young family, uh, it's, it's been his dream to own property and he, um, he's got, you know, a set amount of money to spend. And you look at kind of the situation that the market's in, you talked about prices are just getting driven up. Um, What do you tell that guy right now? I mean, is this a, is this a time where he could still find that, you know, maybe it is just a small 20 acre piece that he wants with wooded, whatever. Um, Is this a time where you think you can still help somebody find 
um, you know, that, that piece for a reasonable amount of money, or do you tell that guy that maybe he should hold tight for a little while and, um, you know, and wait for, for things to settle down a bit? Yeah, that's always a tough one because I feel like it's not my place to tell someone what to do, but I can tell them what I think and they can decide what they want. But like, it's always, and there's a lot of sharp people that I've had on the lane podcast, people I've crossed paths with, like the best time to buy was, was yesterday and the next best time to buy today. And so everyone's like, sitting in their bunker waiting for this giant price drop. And I know clients that two years ago, 2020, oh man, things are going to go way down. The COVID's going to destroy everything. Well, here they are. They can buy 30 or 30 to 40% less ground than what they could have if they just ponied up and bought something 2020. Now with a lack of inventory, I think it's harder to find a deal. Um, I bought, I bought my first farm last, I went under contract last June. And I have not found another property that I was like, oh man, I wish I would have waited to buy that. And, and when I bought that, but when I was, before I was going into contract, I remember talking to my dad, just talking to, to my wife. And I was like, you know, like there's these handful of farms, like I'm going to be a little butthurt if they go, if they become, if they become available. And I just, you know, like we just eliminate our entire cash position on, on this property. And I, I've had so much peace with my purchase decision. Like I, you know, I have no, no regrets whatsoever, but it's the unknown of like, ah, oh, man, well, something better is going to come along. And I think you just got to if check off enough boxes. No property is perfect. Move forward with it. Move forward with confidence. And if you, you know, force a little appreciation, improve the property, run some trail cameras, you can end up selling it. Like as long as you buy it right, you can end up selling it and go on, move on to something else too. Like your first property from what I've seen is usually not your last. So just go into thinking that where, you know, I, <laughs> It's just tough because I, I get it. It's a lot of money. It takes the it knocks the wind out of you. And uh, but you gotta have some confidence with with what you want. Like this is what I want. I'm confident in it. It'll work out. If we hate it for whatever reason, or we want something different, something bigger, we can sell it. So like you're not locked into it forever. I, I we've been listening to a couple of your podcasts, obviously, and and uh, there's something definitely that a lot of these successful land buyers have in common. Like without a doubt, in my opinion, there's a few things that stick out and. Um, I don't know what it was, but I was listening to, I can't even tell you who the guy was, but I was listening to one of your podcasts and, um, the guy like made me think about how like land is literally like a 401k almost. It's like, I've never looked at land that way until I bought my ground. And then just the more that I've been able to kind of spread my wings on it and get to, you know, I'm, I've got some CRP and just the, the financial piece that goes with it and how you can turn properties. Um, it's pretty epic. You know what I mean? Like, um, I guess just give a little bit about how somebody could potentially flip farms. Cause I I've, I've heard, um, one of your podcast guys come on and he talked about how he's bought so many different farms and kind of rolled into the next one, rolled into the next one. Can you just give a little bit on that? Yeah. It's something I don't have a ton of experience with personally. So, but from what I've seen, it's most of these people that they, they, they just start doing it. Like there's really no, there's no magic formula. Like, well, how do, how do I get in shape? Well, you, you eat right and you work out more like, well, how do I do that? And it's like, well, you just get started. Like it's going to evolve. And so it's kind of the same thing with these people that they just buy a farm, they buy it right. And they have a vision. And it's these people that are very entrepreneurial spirited and they just, they just make it happen. I like, and there's not a specific roadmap that like, Oh, this is how you do it. I'm going to be here to hold your hand the entire way. Like if that's what you want, this probably isn't for you. Um, but yeah, I mean, most of these people, they go and they buy a farm, they, they improve it. They maybe add some food plots. Uh, and I think you can tell when someone does that, like half ass, like they're, they're just trying to check these boxes to make it a turnkey hunting farm. So like, 
but thankfully I think buyers are becoming more aware, but like go in there and like truly with your heart, make it a better farm. Like, just don't do it. Like I'm going to like, you know, like you're just like, you know, like doing this with your fingers, like, Oh yeah, I just add a food plot, add some trail cameras and, and move on. Like, I don't think that is the way to do it. And I think your reputation is going to get burnt pretty quickly, but if you go in there and you plant shrubs, you plant trees, you, you, you like do it with thought and like how you would do it. If you were going to keep it, that's the best way to do it. In my opinion, have I done it quite yet? I got one I could probably end up selling, but uh, I don't know if I want to do that yet. So that's kind of what it is. And I think uh, the other way too, is you can do a uh, self-directed IRA as well. And so that basically means like for someone that has a 401k with work, you can roll that into basically you, the land is your IRA, but the problem is you can't technically hunt on it. Like that would be against the rules. So like if you, let's say it was a mix, let's say it was an 80, you had 40 acres tillable, 40 acres timber, you could own, you yourself could own the 40 and then the 40 tillable could be part of your self-directed IRA, which you technically could hunt on or, or enjoy it. So like there's, there's some rules there, but really like whatever you can dream up or be creative, uh, dive into it and start learning about it and find people that know like that's what they do because like almost every category of this there's people that do that for a living so go find those people and they'll be able to tell you you know way more than what i could uh in in depth so that would be my advice but the other ones is get started have a vision and and do it do it for the right reason don't do it because you're just trying to make a quick buck yeah and one thing we've talked about too on some of the previous uh podcasts and in this buy dirt series has been like prospecting opportunities. And so like you hear a lot of these deals that get done where it wasn't something somebody just saw on Zillow, like somebody knew somebody who knew somebody that was getting ready to list or might be interested in selling. So it is that kind of how some of your deals have been working with recently is that, you know, because I think I think I remember listening to your podcast and the farm that you ended up buying. Mm -hmm. um, there were some like interesting connections there and it ended yeah. up being a farm that was in your family at one point. But yeah, that was super lucky. Farm. Yeah, yeah, that, that was super lucky. And yeah, so to get everyone up to speed. So I had a farm listed um, and these folks called me like, hey, we want to buy this farm. Um, we have to sell ours. And so I, I just told them, like, I'm, I'm very interested in this. Like, I am an agent. I'm very interested in this. Let me go look at it. And if it's something that, you know, Cause I hadn't stepped foot on the house or the farm before, but I drove by it a million times. And so in that scenario, yes, I kind of had a, an, an edge on that. I will be honest. I had an edge on that. The other farm I bought was listed in the MLS. Anyone in the entire world could have went and bought it. Um, mm -hmm. But I once again had an inkling that it was going to be listed. I already thought about it. I already talked to my banker and uh, it was listed. I was actually in Ohio for Exodus. So I was actually out of town. I didn't have a chance to walk it again because I did walk it previously. Um, so like, yes and no, but the flip side of that is like both scenarios was pretty well prepared, like for something like that to happen. So like someone that maybe isn't well connected in an area, you could still have your finances in order and ready to, ready to rock and roll, like in a moment's notice. So that would be what my advice would be. But yeah, I mean, the more people you talk to, Hey, I'm looking to buy something. I'm not a tire kicker. Like this is kind of what I'm looking to spend. This is kind of what I expect to pay per acre. And I think that will help because even I get, I get a lot of messages, emails and, and calls and texts like, Hey, if you find, you know, a 40 acre parcel for like $4,000 an acre that has like $50,000 of logs on it, call me. I'm not calling you, man. I'm buying it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like you have to do some of your own homework. And, uh, I would say that, but if you talk to some agents and get an idea and like really show that you are serious, um, like there's a deal I brought a buyer and a seller together and the buyer was very serious. They've already talk to their lender. They have a letter. This is exactly what I'm looking for. This is what I'm expecting to, to, to spend. Had a seller wanting to sell and brought those two together. So like 
that does happen. But once again, like the effort you put in is what you're going to get out. Like there's, uh, there's no lucky rabbit's foot that's in your pocket. That's going to make you trip into a deal in my experience. So do you have any like epic stories of deals? Like something that this is like unbelievable. I can't believe that deal went through. I can't believe that happened or whatever. <laughs> Anything that sticks out to you that you would want to share? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of there's some like holy cow. I'm surprised we made it to the close the table on this one. <laughs> and so uh, those ones are always really you're always real thankful walking out of that one. Um, but there's there's an example where you know, I, and I think this happens a lot too. It's like um, was helping a, a client buy their first parcel. And it was a farm that was listed for a, a while. And uh, there were some, I guess, less redeeming traits of the farm. But in, in my mind, they were actually more, redeem, more uh, redeeming. And so, and locally, people thought it was way overpriced and everything else. And I started doing homework on this parcel. And I was like, man, you do what you want. But like, I think that this is going to end up really well for you. And so the long and short of it was it was outside of a industrial complex. And I was like, you're sitting on a lottery ticket. I don't know when you're going to be able to cash it, but it'll work out. And so long short of it was he bought it and he enjoyed it, uh, hunted the heck out of it. And then the next spring, he got a call from a corporation nearby and he sold it for a lot of money. And he's since then, you know, rolled, I mean, in, in two years, he's a, he has a different, whole different land portfolio than what he could have dreamed of. And so like, that's kind of a success story of don't let the the chatter of the locals like, oh, that's crazy. I'd never pay that. Like, you you have to take you have to take a plunge and like that is something that's very rare and doesn't happen often. I felt really confident it was going to happen, but I mean even if my level of confidence doesn't matter, like he's the one that's writing the check to buy it. Um, so like just that would be kind of one example of like a a great story. And I don't want to share too much because it's not my story to share. Um, For sure. But there's and there's other instances where it's like. I, I really like these deals that have been listed forever. Like I think more, more times than not, when I help someone buy one of those, it usually works out really well for the buyer. And that's especially with how much thing has gone, how much prices have gone up so fast. And so it's happened so much more. It's so like there was another farm where it was listed for a really long time, brought in some buyers and it, uh, I mean, they bought it really well. They bought it right. And they could, they could make a lot of money if they decided to sell it uh, right away just and remarket it and everything else. So like, that's something that, Usually the longer properties on there, the more stigma there is. Um, and if there isn't anything like glaringly wrong, then it could be a, a good buy. Like here's another example. There was one that <clears throat> I went and walked the day I got listed. I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. I'm very interested in buying this. It was listed by another brokerage in the MLS. It's all on realtor.com. Went and walked it. And like there was uh, used to be, uh, there, there's EPA concerns in the area is what I'll say. I walk it, I get on top of this ridge, it's gorgeous incredible view. It's all switchgrass. I'm like, why the hell is it switchgrass up on top of this thing? Like, and come to find out it was a remediation of an old mine. And like, and I started reading uh, studies on EPAs and like uh, on these EPA studies and you can't eat a turkey. You, you're not supposed to eat squirrels and you're only supposed to eat X amount of deer. And I was like, well, I don't want to buy that. But that would be an example of like too good to be true. So like there's both ends of the spectrum of like, you know, someone went in there blind, super excited that would have overlooked those things. Um, I, I don't know. Like it's just the more deals you look at, the better you're going to get, the more sophistication you have, the more people you can bounce ideas off. Um, like those are all things that go, go online for the others. There's some other stories I'd love to share, but they're not mine, <laughs> mine to disclose, but there's uh, and there's a lot of deals that just go super smooth, exactly how they're supposed to. 
no issues, no hiccups. And uh, that's something that I noticed for sure. It seems like some of these larger deals or transactions are easier than these small, like the $2,000 lot type deal where um, there, <laughs> there was one where it was like the, the buyer's attorney wrote like a 13 page addendum to the contract for this little lot. And then you have other people that buy big farms like, yeah, it looks good for me. Uh, DocuSign and <laughs> they show up to the closing <laughs> and that's it. And so that's, that's always fun to see how different people's risk tolerances line up with the transaction. So no fluff involved here. What's your, what's, what's, what's Jake Hofer's like, this is what I think is going to happen going forward. I don't want any, like, like what, what's your real opinion of where we are today, considering where we've been, you know, COVID the whole, the whole bit and caboodle. What, what's your opinion like going forward with the market? I know it's regional, but like, give me your, your bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly saving money trying to, trying to get ready for the next deal. I will say this with the amount of work that I have to put into the two farms. Like I don't, I don't think I could have another farm and manage it with any level of effort. So, um, but anyhow, in terms of the market, I think that we're going to see more inventory roll in and it's going to stay on the market longer. I don't think prices are going to continue to rise. I mean, like we could actually go for a healthy stall. I'm not, I'm not pulling for a pullback, but a healthy stall would probably be good for the market. Cause these prices that have gone up 20 or 30% and seen what these, these have done is pretty crazy. And so I think that is interest rates are going to continue to rise. I think that's the supply is going to stay on there a little bit longer, but as a buyer or seller, I don't think either of those would scare me. Like if, if you need to sell or want to sell, like, I don't think I would, I would be, you know, held back there and as a buyer. I mean, hopefully there's more inventory. So you have, you have more to pick from. So like, I don't think uh, anything, revolutionary or anything crazy is going to happen. Knock on wood. I think things are probably going to go back to normal. Um, I was just looking at a chart this morning of, so like uh, real estate agents use a, a thing called showing time. And what that is, is basically you schedule the showing for houses and it had this chart of pre COVID post COVID and where it's at today. And like uh, on a monthly basis, let's say it was like 150 showings a month uh, for an area. And then like peak COVID it was like 250 showings for that month. And then like it, you know, like it kind of, it, it has the seasonal uh, dips and everything, but it's showings are still up quite a bit right now. So, um, you know, like, I don't know, I guess that's just a quick way of rambling. I don't think anything too crazy is going to happen. And I think that um, if you want to sell, it's still a good time to sell. If you want to buy, I think it could be a great time too, as more inventory comes in. But I think, uh, I don't think we're going to see like a 20% pullback or anything crazy. Are you seeing um, raising interest rates, uh, you know, convincing people to wait or, you know, uh, cooling off the market at any level? Um, people talk about it. I still think that most of these people are, are financially fit enough to where it doesn't make, you know, like they know where they stand and, you know, they want to get into the property. So, but yeah, I mean, there's no doubt like a 2% rise on a, on a giant loan. It's, a, it's a lot of money. Uh, but the thought is too, in, uh, I think Flint talked about it. He was on the land podcast and he talked about like, Hey, like, I don't care if uh, interest rates go up, I'm going to buy stuff cheaper. And I want to interest rates go down. I'm going to refinance it. And it's so crazy because I'm not an economist or anything else like that, but it's like the, the, the economy is getting stimulants and depressants. Like, all right, it's, it's rolling up. All right. We need like the economy sucks. We need to throw you some stimulants. Let's get this thing rocking. Like, Oh, cool off. You're too hyped up. Now we need to cool you back down with the, some depressants. And like, it was the analogy of uh, Elvis, like a rock star, like you got the show and you got to cool off. And so like, it's the same thing with the economy. And so uh, it's so unnatural in a lot of ways, but like right now, uh, you know, they're juicing the economy up and then now they're giving it the depressant, raising interest rates for, for things to cool off. So 
Um, I don't know. It's just, we, and what I always say too, is like, you can only control what you can. So like, you can sit here and hypothesize, but like just chop away one day at a time, you know, like work with what's in front of you. And, uh, that's what everyone else is dealing with. Yeah. How, um, where, where do you sit or how do, how do you, I guess, communicate with your clients on the importance of like buying within your means? Like one thing that we've kind of talked a lot about, um, and specifically Nate, uh, when he was looking for his farm, you know, he, he set a hard boundary of like, even if I see my dream farm and it's over this number, like this is my number and it mm-hmm. has to be inside that. And, you know, we both feel very strong that that's, that's an important thing, but yeah. have you, you know, where, where do you sit on that? And what have you seen kind of recently are, are people starting because money was cheap, starting to flirt with buying out of their means or, or not necessarily? Um, I think that, uh, most people I've seen that, you know, like, I feel like most people stick to their hard rules. Um, I mean, for instance, I'll just give you myself as an example. I, I didn't want my personal mortgage to exceed 25% of my, my take-home pay. And so that was uh, my wife's income and then my exodus income. And then um, I did not include my real estate income because like, you know, you, you never know what could happen. So that was something that like trying to live by those rules that people put out there for not being house poor or land poor or anything else. But I would say too, I've seen where people... Like I would hate, I always hate to see something fall apart for something like very small in the grand scheme of things. Like hopefully, hopefully your income is going to raise over the next five, 10, 20, 30 years. So like, even if it's just slightly out, but it, man, it's perfect. If you have the ambition to make it work, you'll be able to make it work. And then like a lot of these other things too, like these other people who've been really successful and I'm sure there's, I don't know if, I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure there's some people that it didn't work out for, but like a lot of these people who really acquire a lot they, they just deregulate their risk tolerance. Like they just full sand, like I'll figure out a way to do it. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but uh, if there's a will, there's a way. And so I think that's another thing, but I think everyone should always stay within the realm of a level of comfort. Like, I think that if you over exceed that, like a lot of things are going to fail in your life. Like you're probably not going to do your job as well. You're probably not going to be as good as relationships with friendships or or friendships or anything else. Cause you're, you're probably going to be stressed out to the max. So that would be something there. But I think most people, most people know where that is for them. Like everyone knows what they're comfortable with. Do people usually come to you having a pretty clear understanding already of what it is they're looking for? Or do you often then say, Hey guys, you you need to sit down and clearly identify what it is you want. Like how many acres are important. If if it's a house, what are the things that are important? Like do most buyers come to you with a pretty good idea of what that is? Or do you often kind of have to prompt them and to say like, we need to, we need to kind of describe very clearly what it is we're looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that most people have an idea what they want until they realize like everyone, I want a property that has four-sided access, great neighbors, big deer. Like you have to have some level (laughs) of uh, realism with what you're trying to get. But I think that probably usually evolves on what, what starts and finishes of what they really think they need. And then once they start looking at them, like, well, you know, I don't know if I really need that or or this, but I usually start my conversation with people that are looking to buy ground. Like, do you want to kill top, top, top end deer for the area? Or do you want to kill like strong deer? Okay. Well then in my mind, then I know what, what areas of the counties where you need to be. So, and if there's a lot of people like, Hey man, I just, I just got a, you know, a few kids and I want to go out there and hunt and have a good time. Perfect. Well, that expands our search zone. And you have some people that are like, I want to buy into the best deer neighborhood possible. I want to have a chance to kill a boon and deer every couple of years that's a very specific thing too. And like, well, you're going to be more patient. And when it one comes, like you gotta be ready to rock. So, um, I think that's, that's something for sure. But I think the biggest thing is like knowing your price parameters, um, and what exactly you want. I think a lot of people too, 
want that are maybe misinformed in terms of buying hunting land that like they just want the the park-esque timber like this beautiful open hardwood like that's the last thing you want <laughs> but a lot of people that's what they think they want and then you ask them well, well what's your what's your hunting goals and it's like well i want to kill big deer and all that, like all these different things like that's probably not going to be the best property for you so that's just some level of education uh, of explaining well why that is like there's no ground forage there's no cover there's all these different things so that's something that you just kind of have to educate along the way and people will realize what they really want throughout the process. And sometimes you got to go look at a farm that you don't think you'd like. And it's like, well, actually that is pretty sweet. And that's, that's something too, like where people look at these drone pictures or these aerial images of these farms and they could be drastically different from by the time you look at them. Cause like some of that satellite imagery changes. So like the, uh, I want to say Illinois, like the FSA map satellite updates every two years. Well, uh, I'm creeping on there all the time because you can look at where people's food plots are. Like they fly that thing in August. So you get an idea. And so you can, I, there's a farm that was uh, near a neighborhood that I hunt. And it's like heard murmurs that there was some clear cuts in there. It's like, Oh no, there's some like 14 acre clear cuts. Like that's awesome. Good for him. But if you were looking at the Google maps, like you wouldn't notice that it looks like a giant hardwood temper. So like, that's the other thing too, of like looking at the, all the different maps. One of my favorite, I think underrated tools for land searching too is mapright.com. And so I like that for prospecting. Like Onyx is still a beast for hunting applications, but for MapRite, you can filter between like six different satellite imageries. So you can get an idea on the different years. And then there's like a lot of different tools in there. Um, there's MapRite, uh, they, they do a free trial. Like if I was going to look and you can look at the owner data, you can get their address a lot easier. And so that would be a, a tool that I think would be good too. They're like really prospect hard. And, uh, you can, you can do a lot of different things, which I'm going to give away all the secret sauce, but like, that's, that's a tool I'd look at. I just see some, uh, some secret sauce there actually. Yeah. We had to write that one down. Um, <laughs> so I, I liked what you said about the importance of going and walking, sorry, going and walking properties, because, um, that's one thing we talked a lot about. And even when, you know, we were, uh, both kind of in the, in the market and looking, you know, we, after walking just a handful, we were so blown away by how different it looked from Onyx and what we had thought we were going to see going there. And so at that point, we kind of both were just like, if, if it's available and it fits, you know, these criterias, we're just going to go look at it because yeah. you really don't know what it looks like until you go there and see how it lays out. Especially like one, one of the key things for me and, and Nate will get into this too with, with his farm, but um, the elevation like that, that's also always so hard to visualize yes. um, until you get there and actually see how it lays out. Yeah. For sure. I, I couldn't agree more. And the other inverse too, uh, here locally is some of these farms that look like they have like no timber or the really limited hunting opportunities where it's like, well, that just kind of looks like an old pasture with uh, a few draws. Some of those are awesome. Like some of those are just tore up. Like un, un, like I walk a lot of farms and I'm so thankful I get to do that. And so I always have a baseline metric of comparing farms and different terrain types. Like some of those um, I think are really strong. And I don't know if it's because the deer are constricted to the same area. And so they lay down more scent because there's more general deer scent there where like on a open hardwood, it's uh, a little less defined travel, but I mean, yeah, this, the more due diligence you do in this entire process is going to pay off eventually. And whether that's a self-education, you learn more before you end up buying your next farm or your first farm, like the more you learn, the better off it's going to be. And the more information you have, the better off you're going to be to like go into that conversation with uh, conviction that you know at least what you think you're doing uh, better off than if you're just like well yeah i think this is all right or you know so that, that's the biggest thing like you just got to get started and keep learning 
So to kind of close this conversation out, if you don't mind, like talking about your, your setup a little bit, what was some of your criteria? Uh, I know you talked, talked just briefly about it and how you kind of had a leg up, but what, what was some of your, like, whether you had it written down or not, but some of the things in your mind, you're like, you know, this has definitely got to be on there, you know, for me to really, you know, invest and want to live there and all of those things. What were just a few things that kind of pop out to you? So the, the first farm I bought that one. So yeah, great question. The first one that I bought, it was, it's a hunting farm. So like, that's what I wanted. And that one is, um, I noticed most of the big deer are killed where the bluffs meet ag. Like that's, you know, like that's where, that's where you want to be. So this one was that. So I was like, all right, well, that's check one. And really that was really the big, cause I just, I know where most of the big deer are killed, like the whole entire area. And like, that's one of the most common attributes that they have. Like obviously there's outliers, but to, uh, to have the highest odds there, that was one thing. The other thing was the, can, can I ask a little bit more on that? I'm sorry. So when you say the, the bluffs so, meet the ags, can you just, cause so, regionally it doesn't kind of equate with a lot. So, uh, think of the Mississippi river. So like the, all right. So this is why, in my opinion, this is why the golden triangle of Illinois, which I've never hunted down there, but like, this is why it makes sense. The bluffs of the Mississippi river. So like you got the river, you got big Hills. And I say relative to the Midwest, big Hills. And then the ag meets up on the top. So like you have cover, you have rich soils, you have all these different things. And typically in the Midwest cover is usually the biggest limiting factor. I like just unlimited food. So like you have the cover, you have the travel corridor of the river. And so like Pike County is where the Mississippi river meets. So you have those bluffs and you have the Illinois river where that meets. So they get four bluffs. They get two sides of each river. And so that's where a lot of really big deer kill. You think of Buffalo County, Wisconsin, it's on the Mississippi river. Think about, um, uh, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to gaslight Illinois, <laughs> but, but like, you, like, it's the same concept. Like think of a major, Illinois, uh, major river system. And follow that. Um, even if you think of like Southern Ohio, a lot of it's like very hard to hunt ground and it's all bluffs of the Ohio river. And so like all these different things, so like that's what I would say. And, and they get better where it meets ag because it like gets much more predictable, like a big woods. I've never hunted it, but I know it's hard as hell because everyone talks about it being hard as hell. And I believe if there's enough people saying it's hard, it's gotta be difficult. But like the beauty of Midwest where you have that, it's like on a half the scale, and a lot easier and a lot more predictable movements. But I mean, that's the biggest thing is I wanted it to be near within a mile or two of, uh, of the bluffs, ideally on it. And that's what this one was. And I wanted it to be close enough to my house where I could drive by it every day if I wanted to, which I know is kind of silly, but that's just what I wanted. Um, a lot of that too, like working, being self-employed, working from home, like there's a lot of times where I can buzz out and, uh, and hunt an evening or hunt a morning where I think some people over-exaggerate or over, they get a little too excited to think like, oh, I'll drive two hours. Most of the time that does that, they don't keep that farm for very long. So I've seen that as well. So I was like, I just want something that's close, that's available, that's strong. And, and the other thing too, was this farm had a lot of upside potential. Um, it was logged heavily. And so I knew that right now it is ugly as hell, like ugly first say it, but I know in like five, six years, it's going to be gorgeous. And, uh, and a lot of things that I can do to control it and design it. So that's the biggest thing, but, um, location to home was probably the most important, uh, high end potential of deer was another big thing and affordability too, like just something that I can afford and it's a, in a decent chunk. So since it was ugly and it has quite a bit of terrain changes, like I, I bought it, you know, well below the County average. And, uh, I think after some work to be able to get it closer to the County average. So those are just some, some of the bigger things, the house that I bought the house of 40, going into that, I know that it has some level of potential. Um, and I think that 
is the, the biggest limiting factor is just the neighborhood. Uh, the hunting pressure is pretty heavy. The deer it's, it's more of those fingers and draw terrain where it's a lot easier to kill deer. And <clears throat> so I think that's probably the biggest limiting factor, but I, when I bought this one, it wasn't, I bought, I'm buying this cause I want to kill big deer. Like I already got that farm. So <laughs> this one's just a place to live and it's more sentimental than anything, but you best believe I'm going to do everything I can to make it the best farm you know, possible. And it's a, it's a little bit more of a proving ground, but this one's more old pasture ground has some, uh, some oak savanna type uh, habitat, meaning like there's some giant old two, 300 year old oaks. And then where um, the last two years has kind of grown up and I bought it last September. So maybe the last three years they hadn't rent cattle. So like a lot of uh, invasives are coming up and it's getting overgrown pretty quickly. So to try to limit those invasives, put better habitat in there and, uh, and design it. Cause the, it is cool. Cause there's a lot of sunlight. So it's uh, you know, both, both the farms are pretty much whatever your imagination can be, go do it. And that's what I do like. So like if you had a big old North facing slope that always has shade and you're so limited, or if you had a property in a floodplain, like, yeah, you can kill some deer during the rut, but like you really can't do much because it's going to get wiped out by water. So, I mean, you could do something, you can plant red dogwood or plant swamp white oaks, but like I wanted a farm that I could go cut my teeth on and learn too. Cause I think that's, I just want to get my hands dirty and learn. So go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it sounds like we need to do a follow-up podcast and talk more about some of the things you got going on in your place. It sounds really interesting. I just thought of like a, a hundred different questions, questions and yeah. ways we could have went with it, but, uh, anytime. Um, yeah. Um, I guess to just close it out, uh, is there anything that we should have asked you? You think that we didn't? Um, no, I think you guys did a great job. I would just say that, um, save your money, save up your down payment. I could not, uh, emphasis, uh, enough of like talking to banks and getting a relationship with them smaller the bank, usually the better. And I would, if you're serious about it, make a Google spreadsheet and call every small bank in your state and say, Hey, I'm looking to buy ground. Like this isn't going to be my, I'm not going to be a one and done type guy. I want to build a relationship. And what are your loan products look like? You do that. You're going to be in such a better position than uh, looking to buy like the perfect farm, like go find the best bank. And then that will set you up for uh, a lot of success in my opinion. Yeah. And then uh, go ahead plug your, your land podcast and how people can find you where, you know, if they want to get in touch with you, um, all that. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you can find the land podcast where you listen to, to podcasts every single Monday at 5am, we have new episodes and, uh, we're actually releasing some highlights. So like some clips from the, cause I know everyone wants, doesn't want to listen to an hour podcast. So, uh, if you go to the YouTube channel, just Jake Hofer, you can find different clips from that. Um, the Exodus podcast is every single Tuesday, and then you can find everything that we're doing at Exodus at exodusoutdoorgear.com and then our YouTube channel there. So a uh, ton of content. If you like deer hunting, I guarantee we have something. If you like to learn more about buying land, then the land podcast is a great place to start. Then you can find me I on think. Instagram, just Jake Hofer. And uh, if you're in Illinois and want to buy or sell, or you just have questions about real estate, I'm always uh, happy to help. I don't, I get a lot of inquiries every single week and I do my best to answer all of them, but like, I, I really do like helping people. Yeah, I'll just follow up by saying we we've listened to your land podcast and it's been, I mean, there's a a a bunch of different types of folks that come on there. The guy with the uh, solar panels that was interesting and yep. just walks of life that you get to hear. That's I would recommend our listeners check that out. It's awesome. So I don't know if you have anything to close with, Dev. Yeah, no, I basically kind of like you were saying the, the land podcast is just a wealth of knowledge. I mean, we're kind of both you know, he just bought his farm and I'm kind of in the middle of got, got something going on here. And it's just, it's been very, uh, very, very helpful, very informative. So we just, I think we both really appreciate the content you're putting out. Awesome. We appreciate it. Do it. We're doing our job then. We're, we're educating people. That's the whole goal. Yes, sir. Yep. All right, everybody really appreciate it. Jake, 
appreciate you, man. And uh, we'll catch you all on the next episode. Thank you. There you guys have it. I want to say thank you for, for Devin and Nate for having me on their podcast. It was a fun conversation. Great guys. I encourage you to go check out what they have going on um, over at their website. And I think that's it for now. We have some great podcasts coming here right down the pipeline. So be sure to stay tuned. And that is it for now. Have a great rest of your week. See ya.